This is Jason Albert from The High Route, and you are listening to episode four of The High Route podcast. This episode features Sam Nanny, co-owner with his wife Allison of Cascade Endurance, an online and brick and mortar coaching and wellness outfit based in Washington's Methow Valley. Nanny, as you'll learn in the podcast, had a front row seat to the emergence of the mountain athlete coaching scene here in the U.S. Both Sam and Allison were coaches at the first iteration of Uphill Athlete. And long before that, as an elite Nordic skier, Sam was coached by the now godfather of mountain athlete coaching, Scott Johnston. With all the fine resources out there considering specific training guidelines for folks cruising around the mountains, we attempt to answer some basic and broad questions about being fitter this winter. And as Cody Townsend's coach, Nanny reveals he has, for the time being, not written roller ski training into the plan. Before we get to the episode, if you like what you are hearing, please consider subscribing to The High Route. The High Route is our website focusing on human-powered backcountry riding, the kind where folks make turns on snow. You can find us at thehighroute.com. Here's the slightly more complex part, so listen up. To find the website, you'll need to know how to type a hyphen. The website can be found, and this is all one word, the-high-route.com. Anyway, our model is pretty simple at The High Route. We'll ask for a modest annual subscription fee to access our stories, which, if you think about it, it's a rather old school model. However, our podcasts are free. We'll be producing two different podcasts, one more general in nature with stories and interviews. That's the one you're listening to right now. The other will be gear-focused and hosted by Wilson, Wyoming's Gavin Hess. That's the Gear Shed podcast. Anyhow, the podcasts, they are not free to produce, edit, or store on a server. So if you like the podcast, please consider supporting The High Route. We'd appreciate it. Okay, that's the plug for the website and our mission. Here's Sam Nanny. I'm going to let Sam introduce himself a little bit. I got to know Sam through kind of the Nordic scene. Uh, we have a mutual friend, Dakota, Black Horse Von Jess. I love saying that name. <laughs> uh, great guy. You guys skied at college together, I believe. We skied, yeah. We skied in college together and then for many years after did a lot of traveling together and yeah, driving icy back roads in New England. Yeah. Did you have, were you ever co-pilot in that little Subaru of his? Oh God, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I've got some, yeah. You survived <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So we're going to get control of ourselves here. I've got very specific training questions for you. And, and I posted a story today. It's Friday, like October 20th, 20th or 21st. My daughter's birthday. 20th. Yeah. Oh, it is. Happy birthday. Libra. Awesome. Uh, is, she, is this still counted as Libra? She doesn't actually. She is. I only, well, I don't know. Like my brother's a Libra, so I'm a little bit jaded. So hopefully she doesn't act like that type of Libra. <laughs> Well, well, it's funny because Allison's a Libra and she is like to a T and, you know, embraces it and it's lovely. But Izzy, who's our youngest daughter, uh, is very much like me, which I don't consider myself Libra-ish in any sense of the word. So, but that'd be really funny and and ironic if she were in fact a Libra. (laughs) She is. 
Uh, okay. Yeah. She's on the cusp because I think it changes on the, I'm born on the 22nd of September. So I'm a Virgo. And the next, I think it changes after the 23rd. Uh, I don't know. I'm right on the cusp. Okay. So she's a, she's a cuspy. She's all right. She's a blend. Okay. So you're part of this whole ecosystem of like mountain athlete coaches and, and I'm using those sort of definers just because it helps kind of compartmentalize and I'll, I'll let you sort of describe what you may or may not be or how you want to describe yourself. Um, but uh, yeah, so first off, who are you? <laughs> and tell us a little bit about, you know, who you coach for, and then I'll get into kind of the first question, like legit question there. Yeah, who am I? Um, grew up in up here in the North Cascades, and most of my, well, pretty much most of my life until I was about 30 was spent with Nordic ski racing. Um, Grew up, yeah, we have an excellent Nordic ski trail network here in the Methow, um, and I was fortunate enough to have a handful of really great uh, coaches who sort of fostered that passion and gave me grounding in, in the sport and in training. Um, went on to ski in college with Dakota and others at Dartmouth, and then, uh, yeah, pursued the post-collegiate ski track, which we sort of... Um, sarcastically or, or facetiously called professional for, <laughs> because for most of us, there's nothing, there's nothing really in it other than, uh, you know, maybe some brief moments of glory. And then for, for a select few, there's some, there's some resources handed back, but it's, it's, it's a, it was a wonderful time to just be able to, you know, put, put a bunch of energy into seeing how far I could go in that sport. Um, and fortuitously, you know, I didn't obviously like so many things you don't really recognize at the time, but it was, it was laying a groundwork for me in the sport and, and, and sort of an understanding of training, uh, but, but also with relationships and, and just sort of developing a rapport with people whom I would later be able to collaborate with or, you know, work with as I sort of launched this next career, which ended up being coaching. Um, so my, my ski coach for about eight years when I was racing in that post-collegiate um, sort of national circuit realm was Scott Johnston. Um, and Scott, Scott had been here, he'd moved to the Valley from Bend actually when I was a junior in high school. And so he, um, he started helping out with the Nordic team here when I was a, when I was in high school, we met each other, knew each other a little bit. And then shortly after I graduated college and was kind of trying to do it on my own, I'd, I'd gotten a little bit of um, like industry support, but I was, you know, still not really at any level to, you know, draw any attention and ended up, uh, coaching myself into a pretty deep hole of overtraining. Um, and had no idea what I had done, only knew that I was exhausted and couldn't get out of my own way in, in any race or anything. And, uh, I remember reaching out to Scott I think my mom, in fact, I was, you know, describing to her how I felt like garbage. And she's like, oh, you should, you know, you should talk to Scott. He's, you know, he's been coaching the team here and, you know, he, you always had a good relationship. And I did. And he pretty quickly diagnosed me as being overtrained and then offered to help me um, sort of pull myself out of that hole. And uh, I was living in Bozeman at the time and sort of, sort of isolated. I mean, there were a number of, of, athletes there in my of my generation um a couple of them were on national teams and and a couple of them were kind of on their way out of the ski circuit and so I was sort of in this place where I didn't really have folks to train with uh 
so I decided to move back to the Medhow and, and work with Scott and that that precipitated, yeah, as I said, eight years of working really closely together um, and and really fruitful. I, you know, I, I learned a tremendous amount. I think he, it, it coincided at a time when he had been working with a couple of other high school athletes and then we both just kind of leaned full into um, concepts of training. You know, he'd already been a student of sport. You know, he was a very high level swimmer and Nordic skier. And so he was and passionate scientist. He, he really enjoyed sort of understanding the nuances and details of training. Um, but this was an opportunity, certainly for me, and I think for him as well, to sort of really take that history and, and immerse fully into it. And so we had this, again, this, this, this relationship that we went along and, you know, sleuthing out new training ideas and trying them out. And, you know, I was a guinea pig on all these workouts and, you know, quite often they worked really well. Sometimes they didn't and I was exhausted, but, you know, it was, it was great um, sort of proving ground, I think for both of us, me as the student most of the time and, and him as a, you know, as a teacher who was also learning, you know, several steps ahead of me. Yeah, and then, so that was 2014. I retired from racing and got uh, pretty soon thereafter, I guess that same spring, um, was offered a position to start a new Nordic program in Seattle. Unintentionally, uh, separately, while we were there, Allison um, started doing some massage in the city and got, she had lived there before. It's where she went to massage school and, and she, when she'd lived in Seattle before, uh, before we were married, she had been really um, embedded with the ultra running community there. So uh, there's a Seattle running company, so run by Scott McCubrey and you know, Scott Jurek, Hal Kerner, uh, Brian Morris, and all these, you know, Chrissy Mail, all these great figures of the ultra running world from the uh, 2000s were all in this place. And, and Allison was, was part of that cohort. And, and so when we moved to Seattle this time now together as a family, she was able to sort of reintegrate into that. Without anticipating it, she found herself starting to coach some people. Um, and within, it feels like, you know, it was, it was a matter of several months, she had a pretty decent client roster of people whom she was coaching. And, uh, and that sort of evolved over the course of a year and change. And, and we were able to you know, make the decision, realizing we wanted to be back in the Medhow. That's where we wanted to live. It's where we wanted to raise our family. And... Hadn't really prior to that felt like we would be able to do so. I mean, prices weren't what they are now, but it was still like, could we ever buy a house? We didn't. We didn't think that was possible. But as this business started to grow, and I started taking on some clients, we realized that there was this transferability where we could we could be coaching people in this virtual space and and incorporating some in person stuff and you know and and be in the Met How. So. In 2016, we were able to do that. Um, bought a house here and and moved back and and started. Yeah, well, we'd already started, but but sort of leaned fully into our business, uh, Cascade Endurance. There's a but and then, yeah yeah so well I just yeah so the next chapter is uh, we were we were hardly back we were back for you know a month maybe we'd been back in 2016 and and I'd quickly reconnected with with Scott whom I'd stayed in touch with right so so simultaneous to all of that uh, over the period so Scott and Steve House had written a book um, 
a couple years prior. I think it, I think it released in 2014. They, um, they had collaborated and written training for the new Alpinist training for the new Alpinist. Excuse me. Oh yeah. Um, that, that's right. Yep. That one came and out. And it came first. out in 2014 and, and they hadn't really anticipated a huge, uh, response sort of more of a, a local to the climbing world, but they got one and, and they started getting inquiries for coaching, which they didn't really anticipate. And even when, when we were in Seattle, I remember communicating back and forth with Scott and he'd be telling me like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm working with these people. I'm coaching it. And, and, and we'd even, we'd sort of bat ideas back and forth about, you know, well, how would we remember that thing we did when you were training in this way? Like, how do you think that would work for, you know, a 45 year old who's just getting back? And, and so we, I remember having these conversations and he'd send me, you know, some training he was thinking of giving to an athlete and we'd collaborate. And so it was, it was great, you know, just personally, because it felt like it was this further evolution in our relationship of, you know, we shared this experience of all these years working together and then we can sort of collaborate now on, on the ideas and things that we learned. And um, so then fast forward to 2016 in the fall and they had decided to launch a business. Uh, it, this response to the book had been so overwhelming. They were getting all these requests for coaching. They're like, well, let's see how this works. So they launched Uphill Athlete um, and pretty quickly asked if I could Sorry, my dog is getting in. Okay, okay, we're pet friendly and child friendly on this podcast. Rocket, what are you doing? It's true. You hear that, Riley? We're pet friendly. Okay, so yeah, so they launched they launched uphill athlete in the in the fall of 2016, and uh, and by we'd been back for a couple of weeks, and Scott asked if I could help coach with him, uh, coach for their business, um, and I mean. The rest, I guess, is history. And in, in some sense, like I said, yes, um, I was still coaching for our business. And so it was a little bit of a negotiation to figure out, all right, um, I will, you know, I'll do some coaching for you. We still have our business. And then at a certain point, the growth of Uphill Athlete was pretty, you know, spectacular and quick. And I made a choice to, you know, shift fully into working with them. And that was, and I ended up doing that for five years. Um, Toward the end of that time, I was sort of running the, their coaching side of the operation. I was the director of coaching, as they called it. So I would sort of manage all the different coaches and field inquiries from athletes. Um, and I was coaching a lot of people myself. Uh, so, yeah. And, and then in 2021, uh, and Allison ended up coaching with them as well for a while, for a couple of years. And then in 2021, we both decided that we wanted to sort of take our energies and you know our experience and return to the business we'd started cascade endurance um i had i i did have some sense that things were shifting at uphill athlete and so it felt like a good time for us to to return to our thing and and do our thing uh in you know in sort of our own style and, and with our own uh personality and brand to it so that's that's where we've been since then is running cascade endurance and coaching athletes and yeah Awesome. So, because <laughs> I'm skipping right to question three. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I know. I teed you. I teed you up there. <laughs> all of this is, all this is edit editable, right? If I can edit all this stuff. But the, I was talking to a friend this morning, who is based in Lander, who's like a real 
gosh, this was like on a climb like seven years ago. And he just was, I think I had, I had already just been like reading all this training stuff for so many years that I was kind of like burnt out and want to no heart rate monitor, no intervals, whatever. I just want to be fit and yeah. I'll be fit in my own way. Grassroots. And, yeah. uh, but he was like, Oh dude, have you read this book? Training for the uphill athlete, which I had, and I have a copy, but I was like, wow, there's a group of people out there that are devouring this shit, which I was sort of untapped from. Yeah. And I know Scott. I live in Scott's old house. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here in Bend. Uh, Steve owns uphill athlete now, or yeah, I suppose that's the model. And Scott runs Evoke Endurance. Um, and and there's like, you know, they've they sort of in a way, and this gets to really my question that I know we can answer fully fleshed out here is this whole space of the mountain athlete. And like to think about the time when like Lance Armstrong was like obviously cheating, but winning all these tours. And I was living in Boulder at the time and it was like a dime a dozen. Everyone I knew, except I was not like had their cycling coach. You know, the cycling space was like almost saturated at that point with like master cyclists who hired like Carmichael systems or whatever, CTS to get a plan. So meanwhile, there were all of us out there that were like running around the mountains, either climbing or just running. It wasn't really called like trail running. You're just running in the woods. (laughs) Moving faster than hiking. Yeah. 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 Moving faster than hiking. But there was no sort of like organized principles for mountain athletes. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like how, how would you define a mountain athlete? And yeah, let's start with that. How do you define a mountain athlete? And then we'll get to the second part of that question. I I, I think some of it's marketing, right? Like mountain athlete sounds better than one who runs on trail, uh, or, or, or climbs. So I think the simplest way I would, I would consider it is, is just someone who's, whose ambitions toward having fitness, uh, lay in the mountains, right? Like, you know, and, and like all the, all the things you can do in those wild places. Um, and, and again, I think depending on the venue that the terms being used, it, it has more or less marketing overtones, but in terms of how I might think of it from a coaching context, if somebody says, you know, I'm, I want to train and, and, and I'm a mountain athlete, then my mind would jump to, okay, we're talking, you know, moderate to significant amounts of vertical gain. Uh, we're, we're thinking about, you know, probably added weight in some respects, you know, carrying a pack, uh, long duration uh, type of activity. Usually, I mean, it's, you know, generally not going to be a, you know, 30, 45 minute, you know, high, high intensity effort, although it can, you know, you can have, you know, short mountain races, but, um, you know, so the, and then often a, a degree or, or many degrees of, of technical prowess, whether it's, you know, uh, climbing technique or skiing technique or, um, or just more of a broad skill set of awareness and austere environments. Like there are these, these factors that come into play that, you know, generally speaking, get, can get tossed into that bucket of mountain athlete. And so that, that's what draws to my mind when I'm, when I'm thinking about how I might conceive of working with somebody who, who's in that space. Okay. And, and, it was interesting because I remember I, I know exactly where I was when I first saw training for the new alpinism. And I was like, wow, look at that. Okay. So there was some cool stuff going on. And then obviously yeah. there's the book, uh, Training for the Uphill Athlete, which is a little 
broader in nature, kind of speaking to yeah, more runners, yeah, totally. mountain runners, skiers. Um, yeah. Yeah. So why do you think that niche went unfilled for so long? Uh, I, you know, I think in, in many respects it's because those sports, especially, uh, you know, with the first book or, or just thinking about sports like climbing, alpinism, um, even ski touring, backcountry ski touring, like they, they were defined by going out and doing them. Right. I mean, it's, it's a, pastime and I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative or diminishing way but it was you know if you defined yourself as a climber and, and I think even still you go climb and uh, or if you're a ski tour you want to go ski tour and and, and so there wasn't <clears throat> and and because they didn't come from a conventional background the way running or swimming or cycling does there wasn't this framework of understanding I mean, not necessarily understanding, but thinking about how to build the component parts. And to my understanding, it wasn't necessarily until maybe the 70s or early 80s in, in the climbing world that there became a greater proliferation of athletes who were thinking about it in that methodical way, right? Beyond, you know, doing some hangboard stuff, but, or, or you know, thinking about strength prior to getting on a climb, but, but really considering, okay, how does... Um, how do runners train or how do, how do swimmers or cyclists or, or strength based strength oriented athletes think about the building blocks of their sport leading to a performance? Can we do that? Right. Can we, can we take our sport and break it down into its component parts and start training it? And I don't think, I don't think Scott and Steve were, were necessarily the first people by any means to, to, to conceive of it that way. But they were, you know, some of the first people to codify it in, in a sense. I mean, there, again, there were there were others doing it. You know, the rock climbing, um, the Anderson brothers wrote, you know, really excellent book on, on training for rock climbing. And, and there have been many others. But I think it really um, <clears throat> it really drew on an interest amongst people who were in those sports, climbing and skiing and others to um, to be able to do things for their sport when they're not doing their sport. And, and then to, when they go to climb or when they go to ski tour, uh, they're going to do it better because those component pieces are better developed. Um, so that, that's sort of been the way I've conceived of that evolution. Whereas, you know, if you're a, if you're a runner and, you know, whether it's now or in 1990 and you want to run a half marathon there, you know, you'd have to put blinders on to ignore the, you know, the immensity of information out there about how to go from, you know, not running at all to running 5k to running 10, you know, and, and the building blocks that you put in place because it's been tremendously studied and there've been millions upon millions of people who have gone through training progressions since, you know, for the last century and more, uh, to do that. And so it's, it's out there and available. We're obviously like a ski specific site or split board, whatever, but people human powered, moving uphill um and there's the the uphill part there's the downhill part there's the going across traversing part um but i'm curious when you folks start thinking you know this sort of like broad ten thousand foot view when you start thinking about an individual preparing for the ski season or the ski touring season what are some macro perspective items when you think about these different, you know, aerobic system, anaerobic system and muscular endurance. And when I even wrote that question, I was like, muscular endurance, am I, is that part of one of those two systems? It seems like it. 
No, but it's very cachet. No, <laughs> no, it absolutely is. Um, yeah. So I think I said something like this earlier, but the way I conceive of training and, and if, if I were to think, if, you know, if the hypothetical athlete were to come to me and say, I want to train for ski touring in the winter, um, then, you know, I, I want to talk to them. What's your background? What have you been doing? And I'd, I'd think about it through, uh, looking at it through a lens of, of considering their training or, or the preparation as, as a pyramid. Uh, and basically the foundation of that pyramid is comprised of all the component parts that you need for that activity. And so every activity is going to be a little bit different, but when we're talking about endurance sports, there's overlapping elements, right? You've got aerobic capacity, your ability to, you know, effectively utilize fat as a fuel to cover, you know, longer durations of exercise without incurring undue fatigue to where you have to stop. Basically, like you can process, you can utilize oxygen, process fat, go longer. Um, strength and, you know, strength is one of those things that really can cover a wide range of, of, of fitness variables. Um, speed is ultimately a, a form of strength. But, you know, so I'm thinking when I think about strength at a very foundational level at that sort of 10,000 foot view you're talking about, I'm. I'm thinking about, you know, how, how mobile are you? Like, can you, can you actually do conduct the movements, you know, of, of ski touring, you know, skinning and then skiing down without, you know, incurring at, at the, in a basic manner without facing injury? Like, are you really limited mobility wise? Um, that, that would be the first step in the strength progression before we start thinking about loading you up with, you know, massive squats. Um, but then, again, it progresses with strength. You Then you want to think about, all right, are you strong enough to carry the pack that you need? Are you uh, strong enough to break trail if you need to? Are you strong enough to ski that, you know, 5,000 feet of untracked powder or, you know, and, and then <laughs> and, and then on and on, right? I mean, you can keep thinking of the variables. Um, yes, yeah, so speed can kind of occupy its own category on that base of the pyramid, depending on the depending on the sport and depending on the goals. So if somebody's a schemo racer, that's going to be maybe a different and larger chunk of that base than someone who's focused on a hut trip or a, a traverse or, or just wanting to have, you know, the weekend days available to go tour. Um, and then, and then that, you know, sort of similarly and, but particularly working up the pyramid, as you said, that anaerobic capacity, right? So the ability to really effectively use uh, glycogen or sugars, basically, to elicit power. Um, you know, basically, the idea that you want to be able to push the gas and have a, a response. Um, and so that that is its own capacity that you can develop and improve and, and starts to uh, interplay with those other points. And, and that's so kind of when I, when I think about, again, the 10,000 foot view is like, all right, what's at the base? What are the things that, that you have or that you need to develop? And then as you progress through the training, ideally what happens is those different component parts start in, uh, working with one another and the workouts start resembling more and more the ultimate goal. So maybe a workout has an aerobic component and it also has a strength component and, and maybe it becomes an interval workout where now you've got an anaerobic capacity component, uh, all these things until you reach, you know, the tip of the pyramid, which is your 
you know, performance. Thanks for answering that because I, one of the things I'm trying to avoid here is because, you know, this is a more kind of like, yeah, who's Sam Nanny, but also introducing some to some readers or listeners to like training specifically for a particular endeavor that you're interested in. And there's just so much out there now. I mean, you go on, it's oh, yeah. like, you know, oh, there's a podcast on, I don't know if it's Uphill or Evoke, but what's his name? Zahan. I don't think Zahan's doing a podcast yet, but like every, there's just a lot of content out there. And I'm like, I'm not here to replicate something that's already well done, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. And, and I think, I mean, the, the important thing to remember, and, and this doesn't take away from, from anybody in this space, you know, who's, who's providing that information is that it, it's all variations on the same themes, right? I, I mean, if somebody mm -hmm. if somebody comes to you as an athlete and says, "Hey, you want to do some great ski touring where you can forget about aerobic capacity," like, then you know you should politely walk away. You know, like if if people are everything, yeah, everything is rooted or should be rooted in those same component parts. Um, and I think you know what's what's great right now, honestly, is that people have a marketplace of ideas, not so much about whether or not you should focus on your aerobic capacity or whether or not you should strength train, but, but, um, you know, there's, you know, subtle ways in which you can do them perhaps differently or how they can apply best. And then ultimately, especially when we think about the marketplace of, you know, coaching or, you know, one-on-one -on -one support, it's less about, you know, I want to work with somebody who emphasizes the aerobic capacity and more, I want to interact with somebody with whom I can have a good rapport and, and, you know, and, and actually, um, communicate well with who understands where I'm coming from. And so that, you know, as you say, yes, there's, there's this proliferation of whether it's podcasts or articles or a lot of information out there. Um, but what I think is great is that it's, it's coming from a lot of individual and unique personalities that can cater to a wide array of people. <clears throat> and so, you know, if anything, it's a, it's just a challenge, but a fun challenge maybe for, for athletes and, and aspiring mountain enthusiasts to sort of, you know, sample all of that and kind of gravitate toward the, um, the rhetoric or the, the personalities, uh, the exchanges that best suit them. Because, you know, the person who signs on, you know, or, or listens to uphill athlete may be the di a different person than who's excited about evoke endurance who's then and then different from you know seeing what allison and i do and how we work with people um but we're all ultimately talking the same language that's that's i guess my gotcha point. does that sort of so i'll read my my question that was towards the end uh that i plopped into this google doc was like you know there's and it just seems like a natural leap over to this question but perhaps you sort of answered it i'll let you you know decide that but there is a lot of I use the word noise, you know, and, and I don't mean that to have a, like a negative connotation, but I'd use the word, there's just a lot of noise regarding training out there. And what I mean by noise to be clear is just the, the wealth of information. It's like, oh my gosh, like, yeah. where do I even start? Um, what advice do you have for folks that are interested in getting fitter and, you know, they're just trying to discern like where to find the noise or what is the noise that might resonate for them. Did you answer that already? Yeah. Or, yeah um, I'm just curious. I, yeah, kind of. I mean, I, I think again, it's important for folks to know that there's, there's not very much new under the sun in terms of, 
especially training for endurance sports, like, yes, there is, you know, there's continually new research happening in more of the scientific setting um, that then needs to be, you know, ultimately needs to be taken and put in the hands of athletes and, and tested and proven, right? I mean, it's, it's one thing to say in a lab setting that, you know, this amount of carbohydrate drink per hour improves performance over this one, but it's not until athletes are trying that on <clears throat> in a trail race and and realizing whether or not it totally ruins their gut, you know, and, and it's not going to be the same for one or the other. Um, so I think that's that's the first thing is to realize the people, coaches and athletes were figuring out how to train for, you know, aerobic oriented events or how to strength train. I mean, that stuff was getting was getting fleshed out in like the 60s and 70s in Eastern Europe. You know, I mean, the, yeah, I was just going to say I mean, like that, Bulgaria. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. yeah. And we're still we're still relying on rightly so, so much of that knowledge today because you know, it's been like strength training is perhaps the most well-studied and quantified form of exercise that there is because it's a controlled setting. You can, you can try the same methodology on a bazillion different athletes and measure the different results. Um, and it's very quantifiable. So, so to, you know, if, Yes, there are different ways in which you can approach it. There's somebody's always going to come up with a new exercise named, you know, Billy Joe's or or Whopper Wills or whatever that you know that carry the kettlebell differently. But ultimately, you know, you're just you're looking for ways in which to improve the performance of the working muscles, and and that's pretty that that's established. So I think I think in terms of sifting through the noise, one it's be wary of people who say that they've, you know, got the silver bullet or they've figured something out that nobody else has, because that's probably not true. Um, and, and, or illegal, yeah, or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or it's an injection of something. Um, right. yeah, yeah. B12 will not make you run faster on its own. Um, and then, and then I think the other point too, is if you are someone who's looking to get support, you know, through some form of coaching, it's finding finding the coach or the business that speaks the language that you that you know of, of aerobic training or, or, or strength training that sounds um, valid and and convincing to you is only is only a small piece of it like the, as I said the distinction and and where the, where the benefits really accrue are, are in how you can relate to the coach um, and 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 in turn, and so how that relationship is, how much they can appreciate who you are as an individual and what you bring to the table with, you know, the conflicts between training and work and family and all the rest. Um, and then, you know, similarly, I think knowing how much a coach is going to be able to take those concepts that are well known and, um, and create them and, and, and extrapolate them and, and produce a training program for you that is actually going to support where you are. Um, I remember this, this great axiom, and I think it's, I think it's Renato Canova, who is this um, Italian running coach that Scott uh, learned more about and, and we both really kind of glommed onto with just endless wisdom you would produce. And he's coached you know, countless tremendous runners all over the world. Um, but he said something to the effect of, you know, show me, you know, show me two athletes conducting the same workout and I'll show you two different results, right? Like the point being that you can't simply take the training plan that was successful for athlete A, 
plug it on to athlete B and expect the same result. And as, as intuitive as that sounds, I think that happens far too frequently. Um, and you know, in some cases, in a lot of cases, there are stock training plans out there. We, we produce them. Um, we, we develop them intentionally somewhat conservative so that it's less likely that folks are going to overshoot, but it's, you know, I think if, you know, even if you're subscribing to getting supported at that level of, you know, I'm going to buy a 12 week training plan, <clears throat> you know, going into it, knowing that, you know, this is a dynamic process. Uh, and so not being, again, thinking about the whole noise idea that you said, and not, not necessarily believing that if somebody says, here's a 12 week plan to get you fit for ski touring, that no modification is needed. No variation might be needed through the week. If you start getting tired in week three, then you just need to put your head down and keep grinding because it's only through complete compliance that you will get better. Uh, that's just, that's just not the case. You know, we're, we're individuals and, and we require different things. So, um, I think having that, having that sense of nuance, uh, and, and really looking for sort of the, the personalities or the, the, the sort of ethic that that speaks to you because fortunately there are enough different options out there to where I think people can generally find you know find what works for them amongst the amongst them kind of circling a little bit back towards ski specific stuff here um, it's kind of talking to my buddy this morning you know I forget anyway he and I are back scheming another big traverse for the spring pending my knee situation which is feeling pretty good actually um mm -hmm. but i haven't skied yet so that will be a variable i've been roller skiing though and yep. it feels good roller skiing and feels good running well that's good yeah. i mean roller skiing sort of exposes it arguably more than a lot of skiing does so. feels good feels really good the hips are another problem but anyway um so <laughs> Yeah, sorry. One joint at a time. I know, dude. But it does, you know, they're all linked. So that's the problem, right? It is. Well, and the, and the hips especially, yeah. I know, dude. Like the hips and the classic skiing kind of get me. Um, this whole idea uh, of base, right? And there, there's base training. And I'll have you kind of define what you feel like base training is. But I think a lot of us out there are, you know, three or four season sport athletes. We like to do it all. It's running, it's biking, it's skiing, uh, climbing, right? You throw all these sports in there that sort of have their own seasonalities. Uh, and I know a lot of folks that just sort of transition from one sport to the other. And it's like, they're kind of always hammering. Um, yeah. yeah. And it, it, you know, I'm always my philosophy is like if they're having a good time, great. But but if I hear them complaining about lack of fitness mid ski season, they usually get the same mm -hmm. lecture from me was like, you and your buddies hammer constantly, no matter what you're doing all the time in every sport. That's unsustainable. So I'm yeah. sort of framing some context there. Uh, I I hate hot weather, so like I tend to kind of like chill out a lot in the summer, um, which is kind of like, good. It's like my rest phase. So it's, it's for these year round athletes, how important is a base period? And, and how do you do, how do you apply that to a, you know, someone who wants to do year round sports and start that off maybe with what is a base period? What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, well, it, 
kind of as it sounds, and and that's why I like that pyramid analogy I mentioned earlier because you know base of the pyramid, base period. Like, it's it's an opportunity to develop those foundational systems that you hope to utilize later on. Um, certainly, in terms of aerobic training, a base period is an opportunity to do a high volume of low intensity training. Um, and you know, we along with you know a lot of other you know coaching and 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 you know sort of informational sources use you know the idea of the aerobic threshold or the first ventilatory threshold or you know zone two um to define your aerobic capacity your your aerobic zone right so the the place in which you're training and you're you're not you're not burning much more than you know around 50 percent glycogen uh so you're utilizing fat really well um you can sustain outputs for a long time without accumulating a great degree of fatigue so Doing a lot of work in that zone is going to beget ability to do more work, right? It's going to do a, it's going to do a lot of things. Like there's there's structural changes that take place. Um, it it helps your body better process those those fuel sources and go longer. There's there's muscular adaptations that take place. Um, so doing doing that base work early on sort of gives you a big pool of you know you can pick your Pick your metaphor. It's you know big bank account. It's a big barn full of hay, whatever that you then spend later on. Because when you go at higher intensities, or you race, or you you know go on a hard charging mountain bike ride with your buddies, or try to beat a Strava segment, you're probably um, withdrawing from that account, right? Like you're at, at higher intensities, you're you're tapping into that base that you've built and spending some of that money because it's it's more taxing when you go at high intensity you're having to you're having to spend more than earn so so building the base early just gives you a bigger account essentially and and the same analogy is true with strength um, you know building a, a, a high base of strength so good mobility functional movement uh, and then you know strength in the sense of you know maximal strength and then muscular endurance the ability to do the same motion over and over and over again and, and have the muscles operating aerobically. That is also, you know, building a capacity that you'll then draw upon later. Um, so, you know, thinking about like the, the long, the year round athletes, it can, it can kind of go either way. Like if you're, if you're adhering to the principle of aerobic training and, and spending the majority of your time when you're going mountain biking or running or ski touring or whatever your, this, this sort of sport du jour is, uh, then you're continuing to put money into that account. And that's great. The challenge is, as you said, if, if you're sort of each new sport is a new opportunity to go charge and, and kind of push it, and particularly in, you know, in a group setting, then you're never really replenishing that account because, as you say, you never really have a base period because it's, you get off the skis, you get onto the bike, and it's, it's time for you know, town line sprints and things like that. Uh, so you never, you can never kind of go back to the foundation and replenish what you spent in the previous months. Um, so it's, I think there's, there's two approaches to take and, and it, it, my, my sense is for the year round athlete with each season has its own respective goals. You want to try to spend time in all those seasons, ultimately the majority of your time, which, you know, is relative depending on how much time you have, um, training aerobically, exercising aerobically. Um, and then, you know, when it's time to go hard, you do that and you do it judiciously. Or if maybe 
you're in, and this is true maybe for more uh, like race oriented at like if you have a race season you know your mountain bike racer or your schemo race or whatever there's going to be a time frame where you just simply can't put that amount of volume in aerobically because every other weekend or every weekend you're going to a race and you need to be doing your race specific training which is probably higher intensity then it is even more important that in those preceding months before the se- the race season starts you've put that that base work in so you can draw upon it um you know, you know, and I think, I think one of the things that people get a little squirrely about or, or push back against when they hear about, you know, a purported need to do aerobic base training and low intensity is that they equate that with going slow. <laughs> you know, and, and I don't want to stick to my aerobic zone today because all my buddies are going to drop me or I'm going to be the jerk that tells everybody to slow down all the time. Um, or I'm going out on my own and I don't want to take two hours to go up this climb that should only take me an hour if I'm going at whatever effort I want to want to go. And I think the, the really critical piece to understand there is that through the course of developing your aerobic capacity, you also develop greater economy. So it's, you know, imagine, you know, if your muscles, you know, if, if, if the muscles, which power the, the movement of skinning, for instance, are really inefficient aerobically, then yeah, you're gonna have to go slow because as soon as you start trying to move fast, all they know what to do is to burn sugars. So they're gonna reach to that higher octane stuff and they're gonna jack your effort up. But as you acclimate them and develop that aerobic capacity, those muscles and those movement patterns essentially are able to move more economically. So they can do more with less. And I mean, you know, you need look no farther than your, your, you know, the closest really fit friend you have who can run up that huge climb or, or skin right next to you and you're gasping and sweating and they've got their mouth closed and are just totally at ease. And it's because they've developed a really high aerobic capacity to where the speed of movement that you're doing is really not effortful for them. Um, so it's, it's like playing the long game, but it's but I think that's it's it's a really critical piece that people can to for people to grasp is that it doesn't you know it does eventually lead to you can go faster and you're still working easier, which gives you even that much more breadth in the mountains or, or in whatever sport you're doing. Yeah, I mean, do you um, for someone coming off of say you know big trail running season or a big biking season? Climbing is always such a mixed bag, you know, because it's, is it sport climbing? Is it more alpine climbing where there's a lot of aerobic? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You have long approaches. Yeah. So, but I'm just curious, do do you most, do you tend to advise folks that are transitioning into skiing from a very active, you know, season of like I noted, you know, another sport of taking a little bit of a break? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on this is where it comes back to, you know, sort of coaching the person versus coaching the concept. Like I think mm-hmm. some folks, you know, are finishing one season and they're just like, and I think this particularly happens with the shift from winter to spring. You know, we all love skiing so much, but as soon as you start seeing dry trail, like, oh man, I can't wait to get the bike out. And, you know, especially in those times when you could do both, right? <laughs> like that's, that's sort of the, the, uh, yeah. the halcyon days. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think some of it depends on their relative stoke for that next upcoming season and and what they're leaving and and where they're at just energy wise. You know, if if you've if it was a if it was a season on the bike where you were also doing a lot of racing, 
you could be physically tired and then you could be mentally tired. And that, you know, I will, I always think it's, it's better to advise having a little bit of a transition break. Um, just even if you don't think you need it, because at the very worst, yeah, you might, you might have your fitness be a little bit blunted, but that's going to come back really quick. And, and it's just going to fuel the fire. You know, you're like, if you're, and then in the, you know, in, in another circumstance, I think sometimes folks don't realize how much sort of mental and physical energy they've been burning doing the thing in the previous season until they step back and take a break for, and we're not talking month, you know, it's like a week, you know, or two weeks where you really just scale back the amount of effort and activities you're doing. And like, oh, wow. Yeah, I was really tired. Or man, I was spending a ton of time doing that. And, you know, it's kind of nice to have some have some downtime. And, and again, like the net cost is pretty low and the benefit could be high in terms of firing you up for that next, the upcoming season. Um, so I, I generally encourage folks to take a break. Again, it, it, it kind of depends on the intensity with which they were doing the, the previous season. But I, I, think it's, I think it's valuable. If you're a year-round athlete and you're kind of going nonstop, um, sometimes you don't realize the underlying problems starting to fester and, until, you, until you take a breather. This is not on my official list of questions, but I think it's, you can decide, you can decide it's off menu, you can decide to answer (laughs) or not answer. It's fine. Um, One thing I do appreciate about you, you're just, you're not a name dropper. I I love that about you. It's like, you're a pretty humble dude. You coach uh, uh, Cody Townsend, who's like a very large personality in the ski scene at this point, in particular ski mountaineering, backcountry skiing. And he's sort of aptly done that transition from sort of more, you know, free ride, industrial facilitated type skiing to like human powered skiing uh, in, in quite a successful way, it seems. I'm curious, what have you learned just about coaching through coaching someone like that? The thing that is so like, you know, and I think he would, he would totally take, he would take no offense at me saying this. Like, I think, I think the thing that's, that's simultaneously great and challenging about coaching someone who is, you know, at the, at the pinnacle or, or, or at a, at a high echelon of what they're doing, um, is that one, I mean, from a, from a really positive side, they, and, and, and he in particular is super committed, uh, to, you know, and, and, and kind of consummately professional, uh, in terms of, you know, saying, okay, training, you know, this training is going to help me better do my job essentially. So I'm going to commit to it. Uh, whereas, you know, I certainly have other athletes who are, you know, committed to a very commensurate degree, but you know, they're not aspiring or to be, you know, a world beater or they're not relying on it for their income. So it, it's, it's somewhat just a different tenor in some respects. I think, you know, the, the challenges can be often there, there are a lot of commitments and I know, you know, for, for, for Cody, um, oftentimes, particularly this time of year, this is when, yes, the season's ramping up, but it also means his commitments to his sponsors, to, you know, the audiences, to the things which ultimately provide him an income are also leveling up. And so the, um, what is an, I'd say from a coaching standpoint, the, the, the interesting challenge for me is to be doing 
really kind of an ongoing triage of what is the most, what are the most important things that we need to be accomplishing with training while also paying attention to what these other inputs or, or outputs necessarily are, are doing for, for him, you know, you know, fatigue from travel or, you know, exposure to illness or just, you know, mental fatigue from, you know, cranking to get that movie release you know, and, and, you know, let's not put a high intensity workout that day or the following day, because, you know, you're not, you might not have that readiness. Um, and so, so it's, in some ways it's not any different than coaching, you know, another very committed athlete, because it, as I said, it's, it's individuals and what he brings to the table as an individual has all these unique characteristics that I want to try to navigate and provide the best thing for him as anybody else. But, you know, I think what's, I mean, it, there's definitely a, a, a gratification just, you know, of my own, you know, my own self, I suppose, to, to know that I'm providing some measure of support to him and, and help to him that will hopefully, you know, again, help, propel him to be doing his job better, to be providing what I think is great content and information and, you know, information for people out in, in the ski world. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, it's, it's been really fun working with him and just yeah, I bet. kind of sum that up. Two, two follow-up questions. Have you gotten them on roller skis yet? <laughs> uh, no. No, we, no, I haven't. I was, I was, I had to, I had to think for a moment if I, if I'd done that. No, no, running was the big thing. I mean, that, that was a big, and I think, I think he's really stoked with being able to run. Um, no, we haven't, we haven't tried roller skating. Maybe as his joints degree. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, the thing, like, it's, yeah, I mean, that, and that, and that's one of the things, like, you know, using roller skiing for, um, for training, like, I think, I think they can be really helpful for technique particularly for schemo, um, where you need to have a, a cadence and be thinking about those minute details. I think there's a lot, you know, for someone who's looking more at, um, ski touring or ski mountaineering speed is certainly a component, but you know, you've got so many other elements that are in there. Like in schemo, you're, you're usually on a, on a, on a built track, you know, or a, a buffed out track. So, you know, you have, you're going to have less resistance than breaking trail. You're not carrying a huge pack on your back. You have lightweight gear. Um, so in, in the case of, you know, the, the ski tour, the, the mountaineer, you know, someone like Cody, I'm those other pieces are ones I want to attend to. I want to build the muscular endurance and the capacity to move uphill economically with the weight and stay aerobic and all the rest. And yeah. And Pick my, pick my battles. I don't need to throw roller skis. At <laughs> uh, I got okay. The other question is in terms of specific workouts for yep. him. I remember because these were legendary. I would hear about these and I'm like, wait, what? So it would be like you, maybe Torin Coos, maybe Brian Gregg. I don't know if you were all the cohort up in, up yeah. there. Yeah, right. at one time or another, yeah, we were all, yeah, varying permutations of, of all. Okay, well, I'd hear about these track workouts over at the high school. Yeah, yeah. Where, like, the nose was plugged. Or the mouth was, I forget which. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I feel like there was maybe a time where Scott put duct tape over our mouths. I can't remember. But there were definitely, yeah, a lot of workouts on a track with roller skis on. Um, but it was and, like oxygen restriction or something. Oh, like that. oh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, there was no, no, we did oxygen enhanced. 
that was uh, oh yeah no that i mean that was so torin and i so yeah when when we were training together and scott was coaching both of us um you know there was like cyclists in particular and maybe swimmer no i think mostly cyclists had used um like hyperoxic training right so so you're not reducing uh, you're you're adding more and so you're cruising around with a tank <laughs> yeah yeah so the print the principle is like if you've got more oxygen coming in you can utilize you know more glycogen sure. you can you can in, you boost the power um right and it's it's an incredible feel i mean it's it's like instantaneous doping in that respect and sure. so scott scott contrived a way because like we want to do it skiing we didn't have a roller ski treadmill you know this big wide treadmill and so we're like well fuck it we'll just go out on the road so scott had um a, a volkswagen station wagon and he got a, a welding tank of oxygen and he rigged up this um this like medical grade hose to the regulator and then a mask a face mask and then out of the left window left passenger window he fixed a ski pole onto the roof rack, like volet strapped it on there and ran this oxygen hose out along the ski pool as like a boom. And then, and then we'd wear it. So I'd put an oxygen mask on, it'd be trailing out the side of his car and then he'd turn on the gas and, you know, sort of adjust it to, you know, I, I can't remember what the, what the proportion of oxygen we were hitting at, but it was, you know, supplemental oxygen. And then he'd start driving. And I'd have to, you know, and I'd like, I'd have, I don't know, maybe two to three, not even maybe two feet of loop, you know, of little dangle in the line. So that's my, that's my effective bungee, right? That's, sure. that's, that's what I have to work with. And, and I'd be roller skiing alongside the car on, you know, whatever country road we have out here, which are not free of potholes or, you know, the occasional rattlesnake. Um, and, uh, but it was crazy because like, you'd get going really fast. Like, I mean, you could roller ski decently quickly if you're doing an interval workout and it's on flat training, your skis are fast. But then when you add oxygen, I mean, I think we were going, I, I don't know. I don't even want to guess at it because it might sound absurd. But we were going decently fast to where he was having to keep the car going fast and I was going fast. But if there was any alteration in that, you know, stopping distance was, was lengthened. So there'd be... And, and we're just ripping along. I've got this, and oh my God. Yeah, I, I'm amazed. There was one time where he damn near ran over, ran over my leg. You know, I mean, he's, he's trying to pay attention in the rear view mirror and drive and look for cars coming. I'm, you know, doing a workout. So I'm just sort of going as hard as I can. Yeah, that was one of the more, both Torin and I did that. And it was amazing. I mean, great workout and training effect, but it was also really exhausting because, you'd be you'd be able to do that level but you're basically you're it basically took the limiter off of what your muscles believe they could do like your you know your brain is the central governor it sort of tells the body what it's capable of you're basically you know artificially raising that governor and and then as soon as you finish the workout reality floods back in and your body's like what the hell did you just do <laughs> and, and there is there an element of truth to these oxygen restriction track workouts? Um, I got, I don't know. Well, so what we used to do is use nose breathing. So, so yeah, yeah. We, would, nose breathing. we experimented with the idea that if you were to close your mouth and only breathe in and out of your nose, that 
you could like in by in doing it in a certain way, like two count in, two count out, you could approximate the aerobic threshold. And and we hadn't yet really come to a a really clear and I think crystallized understanding of of, of what how what the aerobic threshold was doing how we would define like we thought the nose breathing thing was a really good metric for that but of course you know being a bunch of boneheaded hard charging you know young men we just figured that we as long as our mouth was closed we could go as hard as we possibly could so we're just like snots going everywhere we're like barely barely getting any breath in but our mouths are closed and i think at one time or another we did put duct tape on our mouths to just sort of confirm that make it official (laughs) i mean just I remember hearing that and be, and I occasionally, I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm just going to not breathe. I'm just going to breathe. I mean, it was just sitting here breathing through my nose. I'm like, get hypoxic. My God, it feels not very like comfortable. shit. Yeah. No. Well, and, and no. again, you know, and, and we use that for a while to sort of incur, you know, as a way to help others define their aerobic threshold, like go out and do a nose breathing test. And, oh, yeah. And, um, and what, what we found and, and certainly what, you know, what my sentiment about it is, is that it's, it's relatively easy to sort of fudge either intentionally or unintentionally. Like there's just a margin of error that makes it somewhat unproductive. And now, you know, we've, you know, come to, you know, a sort of a, a, a new, a different approach that is obviously widely used, you know, wasn't invented recently, but to use, just use a treadmill and, um, you know, basically look for cardiac drift sort of in, in keeping with, I think Joe Friel, um, you know, sort of developed this protocol that he built into the Training Peak software for um, looking at, you know, divergence between pace and heart rate or power, uh, and 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 then using that divergence and the degree of drift that occurs in one of the variables to define your um, your aerobic threshold, and that it works so much easier. And the nose breathing thing is just so dang uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, people don't try that at home. <laughs> don't like weld an oxygen tank anywhere and don't yeah yeah, the whole yeah no yeah those those are those were the yeah the again it was a proving ground it was really fun but it uh some of that stuff got left on the cutting room floor (laughs) okay thank you for your time how do do you folks take clients yeah yeah no that that is our business um yeah we uh, yeah, coach athletes uh, have a couple different sort of levels and uh, means for people to work with us uh, individually and, and in group manner and so the rest. So uh, CascadeEndurance.com is our website. Um, and yeah, we've, we've got a couple different coaches that, that work with us in addition to myself and Allison. Um, yeah. And you look fit. <laughs> you always look fit, but you look particularly fit because your kids are a little bit older now, so they're a little in- more independent. Yeah. Are you yeah, like? It, are you ramping up for anything? Uh, well, not not terribly specific. You know, we've got a little schemo scene here in the northwest now, um, so I like to chase those around. I've gotten really into schemo in the last since I stopped Nordic racing. Um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, most of that for us doesn't kick off until March. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of a glutton for training. I mean, it's, it's interesting that, you know, I think there, there's two broad, very, you know, generalized categories of folks who, if you've spent a good portion of your young life, you know, training and preparing for a given sport, there, there are folks who, once they've done that and decided to stop, they're like, stop, you know, it's like, 
I spent my, t- I don't, I don't want to train every day. And then there's, you know, it's like, I love to race, but I hate to train. And I, I love to race, but I really like to train. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that says about me, but, but yeah, I, it's, I enjoy it. And it's, it's a nice, it's a nice way to sort of stay really closely in touch with what we provide to others, I guess, too. So that's, that's also awesome. Helpful. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Thank you for your time. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. This is great. Yeah. Anytime. Thanks, folks, for listening, and please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and head over to thehighroute.com. You got to remember those hyphens to learn more about what we're up to and how you can be involved. And if you have an interesting story for us, head over to the contact page at the high route and send us an email. Lastly, the theme music you've heard comes from Albuquerque-based band Storms in the Hill Country from their album, The Self-Transforming. We'll link to it on the website and the show notes. Pay attention to the sounds Pay attention to your dreams Pay attention to what's all around everything that's in between and I see my beauty in you and I become the mirror that can't close its eyes